All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner. Joined this week by a, a special guest, a friend of the podcast, more than a friend of the podcast, a former co-host of the podcast, Kyle Newbeck of Philly Voice. How you doing, Kyle? Uh, you know, we we had a, a year-long beef that I got kicked off the podcast <laughs> for. You don't have to dress it up for the uh, the audience, but I'm doing well. It's uh, very much August on the NBA calendar. So. It is very much August. We had a, a little bit of a scheduling scheduling difficulty with Rich and myself. Uh, so we had to go into the bullpen, but luckily we had a 2008 Brad Miller. Brad Miller. Oh, my God. Um, Brad Lidge. Ready go. to go. Second time. No, I, I, am, I, am, I am very much in August podcasting mode as well. Um, all right. So I think I think the way that we'll go about this, because we haven't had Kyle on the podcast, um, just get some of his opinions on the offseason out there. And then if you haven't been, first of all, if you haven't been following, go check him out on Twitter at Kyle Newbeck and read his stuff at Philly Voice. You should have already been doing that. But if you're not, we will give you a TLDR version of his offseason takes, and then you can go read more in depth. Uh, so I guess the way we'll do this is we'll basically ask a bunch of questions and get your thoughts on whether or not it is or is not a legitimate problem. And I think where we'll start, because I know a lot of people... And, not like completely obvious stuff like, hey, Ben Simmons can't shoot. No shit. Um, we know that. That's not that's not breaking news. We'll see whether or not that's fixed in the future. Some of the questions might touch on aspects like that, but we will not come directly out and ask you whether or not Ben Simmons would be better if he can shoot because we will not <laughs> insult your intelligence. Yeah, I think that's uh, we're probably both pretty firmly on the record with our opinions on that topic at this point, I would that, imagine. That is a yes. Um, all right, so we'll start off with the bench because I think that's probably where a lot of people are. There might be a little bit of disagreement, not because, you know, I think most people will agree that they upgraded their bench, which isn't saying too much since the two best bench players they had last year, one was acquired at the trade deadline and one was acquired off of the scrap heaps. So it, there's only really one way to go. Um, there was a quiet tournament that really wasn't all that long ago, Kyle, but a quiet tournament between Furkan Korkmaz, Jonathan Simmons, and James Ennis, and the winner of that ended up being your second-best bench player. So they, they pretty clear direction they could have gone in to upgrade. Is the bench, and all these questions I'm going to ask, if I ask, are, are, is it good enough? Is it a problem? It's in the context of... Could it factor into preventing them from reaching an NBA Finals? It's in that that sort of I'm framing it in that way. It's not, you know, is it going to prevent them from winning 50 games? Is it going to prevent them from you know advancing the second rounds? No, the expectation here is reaching the NBA Finals, and that's how we'll ask those questions. So, is the bench sufficient? Is it a good bench? I think it's sufficient, but I do think there are some potentially significant potholes that they have to avoid. I think, first and foremost, and I wrote a piece, I want to say a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, just about like an early look at what the rotation might look like. Oh, and it was as much for myself as it was the audience, because I, I wanted to structure that out in my head and think, okay, this is how these guys fit and this is how it's all going to work. And I think the the problem for me that I see right now is they have to play and develop Thibel and Zaire Smith this year because they need those guys to be not just long-term contributors, but they potentially need to be guys who can contribute in a, a high-level playoff series as soon as this year. And I don't know how you get them 
on the court in an ideal development situation for them because in many cases it's either going to mean they have to play both at once and in that case you might be devoid of shot creation depending on what the lineup looks like you might be devoid on shooting depending on how those guys come out and shoot this year and while I think they both might be decent shooters long term I think the jury is certainly still out on them being above average at this point so that I think is the first pitfall I think number the, the second one, and I don't know that this has been talked about a ton this summer because it's it's further down the the priority list. But they did use the room exception on Mike Scott, and that so that suggests that he's going to get a lot of minutes, or at least a decent chunk of minutes. And that brings into question: what is it going to look like when they do go to the bench? And does that mean Tobias Harris is basically strictly going to play? small forward. And that's not something I think he should be doing for defensive purposes. Obviously that all depends on who lines up around him and how they figure that out. So I, I like the bench. I think they have a decent amount of versatility. They have what I would consider better backup guards this year than they did. Obviously that's not saying much, as you said already, Uh, they have some, obviously the Horford signing improves the backup big man situation, even though he'll be a starter Kyle Quinn is a reliable center. I, I think they have enough guys. The question is, how do you align those pieces and figure that out? And I think that's one of the, the big early tests for Brett Brown is how he, he sends those guys out there to start the year. Yeah, I, th- I think this is an interesting bench. Um, you know, I think they're high on useful guys that I'm not going to pull my hair out every time they're on the court, yeah. which you haven't been able to say for quite some time. But they're low on sort of impact guys, and they're a little bit low on flexibility. Um, you know, they don't have a six-man-of-the-year type. They don't have that Lou Williams type. They don't have anything even remotely close to that. That was the name that was actually in my head when you said that. It's like they just don't have that. Now, maybe people want to say Trey Burke is like the oh God, no. the no, poor no, 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 man no, no. or the homeless man's uh, Lou Williams. But that will not be me. If they get anything out of him this year, I, I think I'd probably consider that a bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if if he had any even remote impact of Lou Williams, he would not be signing for the minimum. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I think so. I, I think there's that sort of I don't want to say star power, but there's not that high level player that you could really substitute into your starting lineup and feel complete. And like maybe Mike Scott, you could. Maybe James Ennis, you could, because you have four other really good starters, um, some borderline great starters around them. So as a, a fifth wheel, you're not too worried about it. But there's not that sort of like sixth starter level player that some other teams have. Um, and then also like, you know, a lot of the players they do have, Kylo Quinn's a great upgrade over, like he's a much better equipped to play in 2019 than any of the 75 other centers they had on the roster last season. And I, I like that. I appreciate that. But, you know, I think best case scenario, or at least what you would plan on happening is he's not going to play in the playoffs because you're going to be playing Al Horford at the center in those minutes. Harold Nato, nice upgrade over TJ McConnell. He can, he's willing to shoot, so that makes him more playable. You might end up playing Josh Richardson as some backup point guard minutes in the playoffs if your next couple of best options end up being wings. So I think there's still a little bit uncertainty. Like I think, you know, Mike Scott and James Ennis, you sort of slot in as your sixth and seventh man right now, and that's a little scary because as much as I like James Ennis, you know, I think we like James Ennis in the context of he wasn't Jonathan Simmons. And like James Ennis being reliable, long-term, 
you know, hot, like playoff high level bench player. I think that you're like, I, I like James Ennis, but I'm not willing to go that far yet. Um, so I still feel like there's, you know, bottom line in the, in the playoffs, you want four guys who have some versatility and that's much more important than your 10th, 11th, 12th minute. And this team, I think is still just like, I think they're going to be a below average bench improved less. I'm going to, you know, poke my eyes out every time they enter the court types of players and they should be able to go a couple of minutes without Joel Embiid on the court in the playoffs without completely self-destructing, which is, is phenomenal. Um, but I still feel like that, that is a very clear weakness. And look, it's going to be tough to really like, you're not going to get, and we can question. I heard Nate Duncan on his podcast suggest maybe Garrett Temple would have been a better use of the room mid-level than Mike Scott. And I think I, I would have some interest in that. Um, and I'm not just saying that because he name dropped this podcast, but I, I want to you know, give credit <laughs> to him too. But, you know, I, I do, it, there's just, it's not, I still think we're going to look at it and be like, they could use one more really solid bench piece, which is sort of going to bring us back into that question. But I think it's a an improved bench, but certainly I don't think it is a, you know, a, a good bench on championship level uh, criteria. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> some of that comes down to like the the type of team they've built. It's pretty rare for a team to be constructed as Toronto was this past season, where the top yeah. end talent and the starting five is really good, and they have like they had enough. We'll call them expendable bench pieces that they could go out and trade for Marcus Gasol to upgrade the starting five, and then still be able to bring guys like. Serge Ibaka and if he had been healthy, OG Ananobi and Fred Van Vliet. And so like that is a pretty rare instance. We've seen with the Golden State Warriors over the, the timeline of their run, once they reached that place where they didn't have money to spend and they couldn't go out in free agency and lure guys like an Andre Iguodala. And as those guys got older, the bench got worse and worse. And that obviously that's not the only reason they lost to Toronto in the finals, but it was a, it was a big part of it. So it's something that you have to live with if you want to have a star studded starting lineup like the Sixers do. And I think given what we would expect of them of the starting five, anyway, you're willing to live with, we'll call it like a below average, potentially average bench. Yeah. And you're, you're starting to see that with even teams like Milwaukee uh, losing Malcolm Brogdon basically has a luxury tax casualty. It's it's difficult to keep a core of high-level players intact while also having the depth that you would preferably have. I think you're right that Toronto is a little bit of an exception, but I do still think that is one area that concerns me a little bit. Um, For sure. But like I said, the Sixers are going to navigate around that by staggering as much as they can and and relying on those, those, those five starters. Um, so Sixers' contract structure. You have... The big guys, you know, Joel Embiid, Al Horford, Tobias Harris, starting in the 2020 season, Ben Simmons joins that group. You have Josh Richardson, who is tough to trade just because he's one of the, not tough to trade like it would be difficult to find someone to take him. Tough to trade because you don't want him. He's part of your core. He's only 26. Great contract, yeah. really important role. Like you, he would only be included in a star trade, a trade for another star. Uh, hopefully one that you can rely on a little more than the star that you traded. For him, uh, and then you have a whole bunch of low salary. A whole, I think Mike Scott. Once you get past those top four, the Embiid, Simmons, Horford, and Richardson, next highest contract is um, Mike Scott at under five million dollars. 
So how much concern is there? We just talked about the bench, uh, and we talked about you could probably look to upgrade that. How much concern is there that at the trade deadline you have so little flexibility because you don't have any real tradable contracts? And it's weird to say, like, it's a problem the Sixers don't have bad contracts, but that's sort of what I'm getting at because if you were going to upgrade your bench, you'd hopefully be getting another contributor back in return. Yeah, that's a, so that's a question I think it, it's hard for me to give a, a fair answer now because it's uh, we haven't even seen the starting five play yet. We don't even know what they're going to look like. And I think to me the the concern is less with the bench and the guys that are behind them in like a bench lineup than it is, all right, what happens if this starting group doesn't work in a playoff type setting and they need to adjust in a way where – Maybe Al Horford moves to like a super sub six man role, and you just need to have uh, like not James Ennis, but a better version of James Ennis in that lineup, in a potential closing lineup, whatever it is. I don't think they want to go in thinking like that. Certainly, they didn't go out and pay Al Horford a ton of money to say, "Yeah, look, you're you're going to get kicked to the side when it really matters." But I so I think that's what makes it tough for me to judge. I I guess. I would quibble with the Mike Scott Mike Scott contract just in the sense that like I think he is a he's a good role player. I just I don't know what kind of interest there would be in him if you're trying to make an upgrade type trade. Like you certainly would have to attach some kind of further incentive and I don't know how many guys are out there that are gonna be matchable on that kind of deal that would be an upgrade. So I think it's a concern, but that's one that I guess we're just so far out at this point of even knowing what this group looks like. Like maybe they, maybe Zaire Smith comes out and he just looks unbelievable to start the year and he's, the year off did him well, just preparing mentally and doing all that and the time he spent in the weight room developing. Like there are just so many unknowns at this point that yeah, I don't. To your point that you made near the end of that question. I, it's hard to to criticize them or say it's a potential problem that they don't have bad contracts on the books until we see them play. Yeah, it is one of the things. This was brought up a lot with uh, TJ. Like maybe bring him back on a like a, a two year, eight million dollar non guaranteed second year just to use as trade filler. Um, you know, and I, that's tough to do because TJ is a human being and he wants to play. And if you're going to bring him back, right. You would hope that it would be for a a place where he can actually play, and I think I think NATO is a better option because, he, like I said, he's willing to shoot. So it'd be tough on TJ to do that, but I do wonder if like just having one of those contracts, one or two of those contracts, and this is where the Sixers in the future years, like next year, they can't use the full mid level. They're going to have to use the taxpayer mid level. That, that could be the case going forward. If you bring Josh Richardson back, they're going to be real tough to add these sort of pieces. Um, and not only as pieces to play on the court, piece of the trade. Uh, I do think, and I, again, this is one of the problems. Um, Golden State has this problem a lot as well. This is one of the problems of, of, of top-loaded teams. Uh, so they will have to figure out a way to navigate that. Hopefully by hitting on a couple of these draft picks, you brought up Thibel and, and Zaire Smith. Uh, their development will be huge. Just real quick, who do you expect to sort of be? If, if you had to say one of those two will be ahead of the other in the rotation and get meaningful minutes early on in the season, which one do you think it would be? I would say Zaire, but I I don't feel particularly strong about it. Like watching them at summer league, you definitely saw basically what you expected out of those guys. Like I I thought Thibault 
was an like he did okay shooting. He was disruptive in passing lanes. Maybe not as great on the ball as a defender as you would like. But the trouble with him was he showed a lot of problems with his self creation ability. <laughs> yep. And like as much as Zaire's handle is a, a an issue, like I, I certainly don't think he's gonna go the Paul George route and turn into like a an above average to elite handler after not being able to dribble coming out of college. But I think he. You can see that work has been put in there, and he it at least looks functional where he can get the spots, and his his pull-up jumper might not be great, but he can get to it, and he can rise up, confidently take that shot. I don't know that somebody like Thibault has that in his arsenal yet, so I think Zaire, with, the, with concerns like that, and also just the institutional knowledge that Zaire has, having been around for a year, even though I think – it's sometimes overstated the the value that guys get from just being in the league but not playing for a year, as we've heard with uh, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. I do think where they're really helped is that they can take the time to to study the playbook and just be up close all the time and be part of that program and and learn in that way. So I think he'll he'll probably be ahead of Matisse for a while in that respect. So I would expect Zaire to come out and and be ahead of him, but Certainly, they're both competitive guys who have reputations as hard workers. So I, I wouldn't count either one of them out if one takes the early lead. Yeah, Rich and I talked about this pretty recently on the podcast, so I won't go too deep on it. But I think I think I trust Thibault's shot more now, and I think what he showed on I agree the, with that. in in summer league, like you know, he showed some stuff on the moves, running through screens, running through staggers, which I thought was was pretty encouraging. And I think that if you had, like, if it were the playoffs right now, I'd probably feel more comfortable in Thibel just because I'm more confident he will not be a complete negative with his shot. But I think they have more invested in Zaire. I think Zaire is a higher upside player. So I think they might give him an opportunity to sort of see what they have and see what he made, what progress he made in the offseason. And we could see uh, we, we could see him in a rotation early on in the season. And, and like I said, just kind of evaluate where he's at. So we'll see. Yeah, it could go either I like, way. I like both of them. Yeah, they're uh, they're they're similar, but they're different enough that I can see, that, like if Brett Brown is sitting in his office or talking with his assistants, I could see the cases being made, and either one of them being compelling. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. I'm sure preseason will be big for both of those guys. So I, as much as I I personally think the preseason is mostly a waste of time in almost every sport, I, I think that's one situation where those guys might be able to to show showcase themselves, whether it's in a game or just in repeated practice sessions. Well, that, that's putting the cart before the horse because you're making a pretty big assumption there, and that is that Matisse will come to a training camp with all of his limbs working and functioning properly, and Sixers history with rookies suggests <laughs> that's probably not the case. Well, I, I'm wishing the best for Matisse. I'm um, hoping that he's the guy to break the uh, the rookie curse or whatever. Prayer, the, prayers, the to is. prayers to Matisse. <laughs> we will continue chatting with Kyle in just one second. But before we do that, a quick word from this week's sponsor, betonline.ag. We have pennant races. We have wildcard races. Fall baseball is just about upon us. And it even looks like the Phillies still have life in their pursuit of a wildcard spot. If you wanted to get in on the action, placing a bet on baseball has never been easier, with all the best odds on betonline.ag. Not only that, but NFL preseason is underway, with the regular season just weeks away. To celebrate another season kickoff, 
BetOnline.ag and CLNS Media are giving you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Head on over to BetOnline.ag or use your mobile device to join today and use promo code CLNS50 to receive your welcome bonus. Don't sit on the sidelines this football season. Get in on the action with BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Please see BetOnline.ag's general rules for additional terms and conditions. A minimum deposit of $55 is required to qualify for the bonus. All right, now back over to Kyle. True or false, the Sixers are a better shooting team than they were last year. Uh, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll say to end the team that ended the season, not the team that began the season. I'm going to say false, and I, it's mostly because I think it's hard to truly quantify the impact somebody like J.J. Redick has on a team's shooting and spacing. Like people, it gets talked about a lot with somebody like Steph Curry that people talk about his gravity and the impact that has. And I know that JJ Redick is certainly not Steph Curry, but if you want to talk about someone who teams have to pay attention to and chase around screens and just is a generally disruptive force, I, he is up there with pretty much anyone in the league and to lose him and replace one of the elite, elite shooters, not just now, but in the history of the sport, and replace that with, like, effectively you're replacing his shooting with several average to above average shooters. And maybe that's it gives you less weak links in the chain. Like, really, you could say Ben Simmons is the only guy that it's a serious concern for. Like, I I think Joel Embiid will come back and shoot better this year. I know you and I have talked about that in the past, Derek. I just, I believe he's going to be able to be a a decent to good shooter for most of his career. Just the results have not been there yet. But I I still don't think, even with the, the sum of the parts, it does not necessarily add up to the sort of player that, J.J. Redick is. Now, the flip side of that is we saw the worst of Tobias Harris's shooting that he's had in maybe like three or four seasons. And so that might come back, even if he does, even if he's not an elite shooter, if he settles in at like 38, 39%, that's a big, that's like a six or 7% jump from what he did from the time he joined the Sixers last year to the end of the season. So that's a big question mark for me. I guess I'm not I'm not super confident about Tobias Harris going back to that elite territory. I don't know how much stock to put into his years in LA and how he fit there and how much of a hub he was on that team versus what he's going to be here and the sort of offense they run. That's tough for me. I I think that they'll probably they're probably a worse shooting team, but we'll see how that actually plays out in practice. Yeah, no, I think I think the way to phrase it is I think they have fewer non-shooters, which I I think is important. Like there were a yes, lot of sure. record scratch moments where it's just someone passed up a shot, they had to reset their offense because of that. They got in a real late clock and they got a really bad shot or a turnover out of it. And I think I think that's important. And I mean the culprits are pretty obvious like we're talking about Jimmy Butler and we're talking about Ben Simmons now whether or not Ben Simmons improves upon that like that's a the number one question of the offseason and one I have you know I'm pretty skeptical about but you know Butler was especially in the the regular season like I feel like in the playoffs he improved that and he took the open shot more often 
Um, but there was that like month and a half stretch where he just would not shoot a catch and shoot jumper, uh, which was borderline maddening because he was fine when he took him. Just oh, it was there was nothing borderline about how maddening <laughs> yeah. that was because I I clearly remember sitting on press row and just thinking, what in the world is going on here? It, and it's, it's different than Ben because at least Ben they go into the games thinking and knowing, yeah, we're not getting much right. on him as a shooter. Yeah, That's not Jimmy the case shoots, with Jimmy. Jimmy shoots thirty six, thirty seven percent on catch and shoot threes, and then he'll get one in the corner with seven feet of space and just. Pump fake, pump fake, dribble. And it's like, no, just take the shot. Those are so hard to generate, so difficult. Like, everything has to go right. There's, they're valued for a reason. Take the shot. I drove uh, – anyway. Um, Jimmy Butler <laughs> did a, a lot of good things. So I don't want to make it sound like losing him is, is not hard to replace. But pl- right. shoot the ball. Shoot the oh. – anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go on the Jimmy Butler sidetrack. I'm 100% sure that when this was going on in the middle of the regular season, you can listen back to these podcasts and we're saying the same thing. This is not a Jimmy's gone, he's the bad guy now. It's, oh, it's no. frustrating. Yeah, I wish him well uh, in his retirement. But I do think losing Reddick, <laughs> and I, I feel like we tend, not we, but I, I think a lot of online discourse about shooters is pretty binary. Is someone a shooter, isn't they? And we lump them into buckets. And as long as someone's a shooter, like I, I think we lose sight of the impact of the degree of shooting and the spacing that they provide. And there are very few people in the NBA who provide the kind of spacing, especially around a big man, that J.J. Redick does. And, I mean, the way I phrased this earlier, when you wanted to get Joel Embiid an easy bucket, who's the one guy you went to? Well, you went to a DHO with, with J.J., and, and two defenders would fly at him, and easy dump-off pass to a rolling Embiid. Really, the only time we ever see Joel Embiid effective as a role man isn't that two-man game with J.J. Redick and getting him easy shots is is key. When a team is sagging off too much off of Ben Simmons, what do you do? Well, you put him in a DHO with J.J. Redick. He forces his man to come up and, and sort of enter the play out on the perimeter. Uh, and losing that option, even just forgetting about all the points J.J. generates from the three-point line, but losing someone who can get your best two players good looks and hide their weaknesses and accentuate their strengths is important. Uh, and I think that's going to be difficult to replace. I do think we're going to see a lot of Josh Richardson and DHOs. It's obviously going to be very different than how J.J. Redick ran them. Yeah. But I think losing that kind of gravity is is, is important. And we all know J.J.'s limitations. Um, you couldn't have kept J.J. and also signed Al Horford, so I'm not saying they made a mistake. But I I do think it is a loss that they will feel. So I think the the way that I would illustrate that, what you're talking about, is if you go back and look at, the, the Toronto series, they reached a point where I wouldn't say that Toronto wanted to give Tobias Harris open shots, but they were not necessarily like, oh, God, he got open in the corner and they're, they're throwing their hands up and angry about it. Whereas if J.J. Redick got free, people are going to be scrambling at him and doing anything they can, even if he's in the middle of like an 0 for 25 slump. Everyone on the opponent is going to believe that number 26 is going in. And I think that's the difference. Like, he just has that reputation. He's got years and years and years of results to back that up. And so I, I think it's hard to replace a guy like that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, okay, so, I mean, here's a – this is a, a pretty easy one. Um <laughs> Is we'll their lack of perimeter shot creation a, a legitimate concern? Yes, and that, that circles back to what I brought up 
when we were talking about the bench with Zaire and Matisse, I just when Ben Simmons goes to the bench, I I think they're going to have a lot of questions with who's creating the offense, who has the ball in their hands. Like the, a lot of people would just say, oh, you just dump the ball into Joel Embiid and and he'll figure it out. And now maybe that works in the regular season where you're going up against teams that, quite frankly, their backup centers have not a chance in hell to defend Joel Embiid. But when you play better teams and when you get to the playoffs, any minutes where you don't have Ben Simmons on the floor to dribble it's going to be a problem. And then even in the playoffs, the minutes where Ben Simmons is on the floor, you don't necessarily have a guy who's going to be scared or opponents are going to be scared by. I think the one thing that gives me a little hope for them is that because Josh Richardson got miscast as a number one type guy in Miami last year and in parts of seasons before that, he is now, I guess what you would say, he's overqualified to be like the third type handler on a team and maybe Tobias Harris with more responsibility this year that he wasn't afforded because of Jimmy Butler's presence last year. Maybe he, that helps him as a scorer. Maybe the offense just, just feels better for him. The experience of having worked with Brett Brown played with Ben and Joel, maybe cumulatively that, that all works out. But yeah, I think certainly if, if Ben Simmons was an average shooter, Derek, I, I don't know that I would even care that much about this question because you just say, look, they have a, a young developing star-like talent that he's going to have the ball in his hands. And when the push comes to shove in the playoffs, he's going to play, I don't know, 40 minutes, 38 minutes, a game, whatever it is. But because the one guy who I would kind of trust to, to run the offense is not a guy I trust to run the offense in the guts of the game in the playoffs, that throws into question everything. And that's that I, I'd like, I understand the, uh, the philosophy behind the Al Horford signing. I think it was a good pivot based on what they knew and what they could do with their cap space and adjusting to the Jimmy Butler situation. But yeah, I I certainly think, I I think it's going to be a very, very good, if not elite defensive team, they could end up being the best defensive team. If, Everything shakes out right, but the offensive side of the ball, I I think Brett has – this is easily the biggest challenge of his career other than coaching games during a 10-win season and trying not to blow his brains out. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very different challenge. With expectation comes a, you know, comes a lot of pressure. So I guess yeah. that dovetails pretty nicely into the next question, which is, is Ben Simmons equipped to run a postseason offense? They're certainly banking on that. From where we sit today, I would say no. We don't have – I know you see all the same summer pickup game workout videos that are edited to make players look as good as possible as I do. And, yeah, he certainly looks like he's confident shooting in those sort of settings. But until that – like, and I don't like to be the guy who's just poo-pooing guys putting in work, like, Good no, for him. Great. He's in the gym. Yeah. He's doing what he needs to do. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to disrespect his process, but at the same time, none of that matters if teams are not going to show him any respect as a shooter. Like I think it's, it's worth noting, as good as Giannis Antetokounmpo is, teams are still like they, they don't really care if Giannis is shooting threes, and he's, he's willing to take them. When the Sixers in the game that they won in Milwaukee last year. 
when they dared him to shoot, he just kept pulling up. He didn't really think too much about it. But they were the Sixers were still happy to live with that because that's much better than letting him operate in the paint and throwing guys around and drawing all kinds of fouls and putting pressure on your interior that makes you crash away from their shooters on the outside. Like that's not how you want to play against him. So even if he's an average shooter, I don't know that that's that's a long way away, number one. And I still don't know that the calculus changes all that much because what teams want to defend first is Ben's ability to get into the teeth of a defense and kick out and find open guys. And so I I don't know if we're even within a couple years of Ben being a lead initiator for like a championship caliber team. But I mean, you never know. Like guys take big leaps that we don't expect in the NBA all the time. He certainly has all the tools. He's ahead of most players his age in terms of the development curve. It's just this one thing has all these cascading effects on not just him, but everyone around him. And I don't think the problems that we talked about shot creation wise and the the roster construction they have, I don't think that anything that happened this off season really aided him and what he needs. Like it, it was good. It certainly was good for him personally to have a Jimmy Butler on the team where they could just give him the ball in the playoffs and he would figure it out. And I don't think they have that guy now. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people looked at this summer as empowering Ben. And I don't you know, I think I think Butler and Simmons were a tough fit at times because of the shooting aspect of neither of them really being willing to shoot. And and Jimmy's game, even his pick and roll game, like he's not gonna pull up off the dribble from three. He's gonna try to snake his way into the teeth of the defense and either, you know, convert at the rim or get fouled or kick out to his teammates or even just then kick out and, and reset the offense. But yeah. he wants to get into that paint. And with, with Ben and a sort of a, 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 a paint-oriented pick-and-roll player, like that could be difficult, uh, especially when the pick-and-roll player is also unwilling to shoot off the ball. So I think you know Ben and, and Jimmy were tough to operate in that regard, but I feel like the – I don't think that means that you didn't want a pick-and-roll player to pair alongside – Simmons, that you didn't want another high-level shot creator to play alongside of, alongside of Ben to overcome some of those deficiencies. I, I feel like you need that level of a creator, sort of like if Trey Burke were good. I feel like you could use a, a someone of that skill set. So well, remember, I, this is the team that traded up for Markel Fultz, and that was I, that basically was the reason why. Like that was the, yeah. There's absolutely. no mystery to why they they coveted him, or at least the the player that they thought he was going to be like that. It's driven by that same philosophy. Yep. So I, I don't think not having that skill set is a positive. I don't think that means that that is going to like, I, I don't think removing Jimmy Butler is going to be the reason Ben Simmons succeeds or fails. Like, I think they're going to have to like Ben Simmons is going to succeed or fail because he's going to get a jump shot because teams are going to respect him pulling up off the dribble. And that will open up a pick and roll game that he hasn't been able to you know, to really exploit at all so far in his career. So I think it's a, like, I don't think Boston and Toronto, I don't think those two series are a coincidence. You know, we've been saying for quite some time now that, like, Ben Simmons might be fantastic against 25 teams in the league. But the remaining teams in the league are the teams that you have to beat in order to advance to, advance to and win NBA Finals. And they're almost uniquely equipped to defend somebody like him, whether that's, you know, Golden State with Draymond, 
Toronto last year with Kawhi, the Clippers this year with Kawhi, uh, Boston I, in a, w- a weird twist of fate with Al Horford. Um, but there are teams; these elite teams likely have somebody like that who can cause Ben. Who, who or Ben's not going to be a mismatch. You know, I think there's going to be. I think it's going to be interesting watching the second unit when Horford's at center, like putting those two, like Simmons in the post, Horford at the top of the key, two elite passers, run some cutters off them. I'm interested to see how that works. But you're not talking about too many minutes with that. Like I think this is where Joel has to sort of grow into an elite three point shooter. And I'm with you that I'm bullish on him. But you're going to have to try to find ways to overcome his his deficiencies in the half court. And I think it, I think in order for this team to be a lockdown, like this team should absolutely win the NBA Finals, he needs to take that next step. And, uh, you know, I think right now the deficiencies are real. I think, you know, by and large, I think I've cut him slack because the amount of progress he's made as a defender, like, a lot of people get on him for the jump shot that he doesn't work. And I just don't think people that don't work improve like he has defensively and buy in like he has defensively. So I cut him some slack, but in order for this team to reach its peak, I mean, it clearly rests a lot on Ben Simmons overcoming his deficiencies and really buying in. I think I'd be a little bit more bullish on his jump shot. You know, like you sort of referenced, everyone shoots a hundred percent on Instagram videos in the summer. That's a, you know, if if not, then your trainer is doing a really piss poor job. <laughs> but I think if his form was, if I was a little more consistent in the form that we were seeing in his videos, I'd be a little more willing to buy in when right now it looks mostly like marketing. Um, and like I said, like you said, it's great that he's putting in the work. I think that's very important. I think Ben Simmons wants to be a better jump shooter, but am I confident that we're going to come into camp and see you know, a shooter that defenses have to respect. I'm a little skeptical. I'll believe it when I see it. So, yeah, I, I think it's funny. I I ultimately take flack from both sides of the Ben Simmons argument. Like I I try to I try to highlight the things that he does well because I I certainly think you'd have to be a tremendous, uh, let's say, a hater to not acknowledge how good he is as a passer, the, as you said, the strides he's made on defense, some of that just being effort related because he certainly didn't try very hard in college. And then once he was getting paid and not subject to the NCAA cartel, that, that, that went up a level, but that even that is an oversimplification. He's put in the work and he studies and he does all that. Like that's very important, but, then I take criticism from the other side. Why don't you talk about his jump shot enough? Why don't you, why doesn't he do that? It's, he's a tough guy to talk about. It's, I, in a sense, it's good for us because he's a very polarizing player. You can fall on either side of the fence and, and find people who will engage with you, who want to talk about it, who want to discuss it. But it is an exhausting conversation and I, it would be best for, for him, for his team, for the people covering him, for his family, for his friends, if he just came out and was a 35% shooter from three. But I, I suspect we're pretty far away from that happening. So, and we haven't even talked about, I think that the biggest thing for me, if I was saying he needs to get better at this one thing, it's free throw shooting because that would, even if he never becomes a good outside shooter, if he's a 70 to 75% free throw shooter and he's willing himself to the line as he's capable of doing, he's a totally different player because the problem right now is twofold. 
yes, he can't shoot, and yes, teams sag off him. But if he's willing to initiate contact, he's going to draw like eight. He could draw like eight to ten fouls a game and get to the foul line a lot. And there are we've seen stretches from him where he has done that, and he's got the body to do that kind of thing. Now, whether he's ever a good enough free throw shooter and whether he's ever has the connected confidence to that, that he's going to do that is another story. But that, and I know Brett has harped on that a lot since his rookie year. And I, I still believe that's his most important first step is to master that. And then everything else flows from there, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's also like, I think it's most likely to be the first step because I think if you're working on your jump shot, that's the easiest for sure. Way to show that sort of improvement. Um, yeah, Ben's frustrating because we all want to be in buckets, it feels like. You're either pro-Ben or anti-Ben. When the reality is he's a fantastic young player who could be one of the best in the league, who's an elite passer and one of the more versatile defenders, and he really needs to learn how to shoot. And all of that <laughs> can be true um, at the same time. Like I feel like we want one to cross out the other, and it's... No, like, okay. Anyway. Last one, and then I'll let you go. Elton Brand came in last offseason having very little front office experience at all. Sort of a surprise winner of the collaborative tournament. Not the quiet tournament, the collaborative tournament. <laughs> a lot of tournaments around. A lot of tournaments. Are you more or less confident about his ability to run this franchise than you were before free agency happened? Because, of course, last summer he was not the guy in charge. He had the Jimmy trade, the Tobias trade, but this is his first real offseason. More or less confident about his tenure? I'm going to say more confident because I think as much as I have a lot of questions about it, I I do like the Al Horford pivot when they – because that they clearly – that was lined up for a while. No, they, they, the- they, <laughs> they started those conversations at 6 p.m. on Sunday. Absolutely no question. Right, and I think it would have been easy for him to sit there and say, like, this is his first big offseason that he's in charge of. He could have said, look, I'm going to – we're going to let this play out with Jimmy. We're not going to go searching for – and instead of – he didn't – he wasn't coming back, and so he figured out a way where they did get Josh Richardson back in that sign-and-trade, who I think is an excellent player on a really good contract that will help them on both ends of the floor. He did go out and – lure away somebody from the team's biggest rival historically and over the last couple of years who's going to be a part of their starting lineup, who's going to be able to let them rest Joel Embiid more, who gives them just a lot of versatility in, in different ways. And I think that's important. Where I will come down on him is obviously the the Matisse-Seibel trade with Boston. There's they have had some problems with telegraphing their moves and they end up overpaying. And so his, his ability to manipulate the, the trade marketplace is still up for debate. We don't really know what his draft record is yet. He doesn't have any kind of history to speak of. So that's all forming in our minds. But I think what he did showed enough that I mean, like he's been bold the entire time that he's been in charge of the team. Like whatever you want to say about the transactions they've made, he's done them and gone after them and he's full force about it. So the Jimmy Butler trade, I think it it, it looks weird now, but I, I think it was the right move at the time. Tobias Harris, I think, was an overpay. 
Thibel, I think they certainly overpaid because that was just a matter of Boston knowing that they they wanted him. But on aggregate, I think I have a bit more confidence in him to to do some tinkering around the the core pieces than I did heading into the offseason. And now I, I I'm not sitting here saying that he's Jerry West or that I've, I'm a hundred percent confident that he's the guy that's going to build the Sixers next championship team. But I, I think he did pretty well. Yeah, no, I think it was a good off season for them. Um, I don't think it started off on necessarily the right foot because not only did they telegraph that they want to die but they telegraphed that they really had no interest in rostering any of these second round picks. And even if that's true, even if that is your intention, um, everyone knowing that you didn't necessarily value 33 and 34 made them more likely to ask for it. Um, it's hard to have leverage when when your people are asking for something that you don't want, and it's pretty public that you don't want. So I think it started off on a rough foot, but I think it recovered pretty quickly. I think the Josh Richardson trade, uh, the the sign and trade with Jimmy Butler, I think that was, you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about Jimmy Butler, and boy, it's tough to let him go because he's tough to replace. But boy, do I not want a four or five year contract at that money with that personality, and to pivot away and get someone like Richardson on that contract with that youth, with that fit, um, to find a way to sort of replace that role. Maybe not, you know, I don't think in 2019-20 he's going to be as good as Jimmy Butler, but to replace that role with somebody younger, cheaper, and a better fit personality-wise. Like, I think that was a, a maybe the most creative thing they've done since Elton Brand has taken over. And I give them a lot of credit for that. Um, and, you know, going after Al Horford. Uh, like, I have my questions about the sort of tail end of that contract. Obviously, the way it's structured helps in that regard, but you don't want a $17 million or a $14 million cap hit for a player who's not on your roster. Like, you don't you don't want that worst-case scenario where that that partial guarantee comes into effect, uh, essentially making that, what, a three-year uh, $97 million contract. That would not be great. But I think going after him, you know, I think it, that will be a, a, a sneaky good addition. I like my I came to peace about Al Horford, the player, real quickly. Uh, the contract still still some concerns, but I like the target there. Um, I think they did. A, I think they did a good job. Uh, I think, uh, like I said, I, I really think the, the Josh Richardson thing kind of puts a nice bow on on the offseason and on the roster construction and gives them a lot of. A lot of maneuverability. I mean, we, we spent so much time talking about how the deepest version of this team had both Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris back. And they are now arguably just as deep without having to commit to to both of those players on contracts that you don't really want. So you only had to yeah. commit to one of those on a contract you don't really want, but that's a, a different um, different conversation. That was sort of – Tobias Harris, the contract was sort of the overpay you almost have to make. Right. Uh, where you're sort of boxed into the corner as a, a, a contending team. Uh, all right, so I think that's I think that's a good place to cut it off. Thank you, Kyle, for being generous with your time. Once again, go read him at Philly Voice. Follow on Twitter at Kyle Newbeck. And thanks for jumping on. No problem. Talk to you soon. Yeah.